Welcome to another FinTech Insider. I'm your host, Sam Mall. This is going to be a special episode. This is actually an interview with the management guru and author, Tom Peters. Now, I can remember the first management book I ever read in my career. This goes back to 1988. Yes, Jeff Tingenson, I am that old. I remember looking for a book to put me to sleep on a long flight and deciding on a Buying Thriving in Chaos by Tom Peters. By then, the book had been on the New York Times bestseller list for a year. I read the entire book that flight in one go. I can recall underlining and highlighting sections of the book that specifically touched a nerve in me. I was excited to find a management guru who emphasized the need for honesty, for transparency, openness, continuous innovation, and empowerment. Basically, everything 11SFS stands for. And this was an author that wasn't afraid to call bullshit where he saw it. 30 years and 12 best-selling books later, I found myself sitting across from Tom Peters at his publishers in New York City. His latest book, The Excellence Dividend, had just been released, and I was given a chance to speak with one of my personal favorite management thought leaders as part of his latest book's publicity tour. What I quickly discovered is Tom likes to chat and go off topic as much as I do. We, we got off topic within the first minute of the interview. As we both reminisced about our time in the Navy, Tom as a junior officer during Vietnam, myself as a junior petty officer in submarines during the mid-80s. I learned that Tom, in his own words, is a born smartass. Just like me. This really isn't an interview. This is a conversation between two guys who both enjoyed their careers, who both love to read, who both can look back and pinpoint a strong mentor from their time in the military, who continues to serve as a role model for them after several decades. I'm confident you're going to enjoy this conversation with Tom Peters as much as I enjoyed the time with him. And make sure you go out and buy his damn book. It's good. Trust me. I actually have in my notes on here, because I, I, I think I told you, I told you on Twitter, I've been, you've been in my ear and on YouTube for me. It's, I'm so glad we're done because <laughs> I'm ready to read the book and I'm done with talks. It is hilarious because, yeah, you when you speak, you, you walk the audience. We're talking about preacher, right? That's what makes me laugh. The hands never stop, right? The the stories never stop, and you're not scared to take a thread and just go with it, which I like, right? I mean, half the time when you're talking, you'll look at a slide and go, ah, screw it, not today. Go into this, oh, that's the one I want. And that makes me laugh, and yeah. I enjoy that so much. I think the audience does. They do. I mean, it's why I dislike TED speeches. Amen. Because my theory is that if I don't mess with you, for the first five minutes of the speech, the probability of connecting with you when it counts is roughly zero. And if we don't tease each other and get to know each other, and you, I mean, my secret, which nobody taught me, just time taught me, is you find somebody with good body language in the first couple of rows. And then, like, sitting down over a cup of coffee. It's, I, have a, I do have a lucky piece, by the way. I always carry with me. the Navy SEAL? I saw one. No, yeah, it's uh, what's a double? Oh, he's got a U.S. Navy CBs. We build, we fight. We're definitely going to come back and talk about the CBs. We're both. um, I think listeners know on my end. I'm ex Navy. I was about ten years. I did two years in the Army. Ten years. And I did ten years. That's weird. Yeah, that is weird. I don't mean weird, but it's on. It's my my dad statistically unusual. Yeah, my dad was command sergeant major. My sister was an officer. I was grew up in Detroit, poor. So 17, right yeah. in the military, right? And then quickly learned that I am not cut out to be in the infantry because I'm a smart ass. I talk back. I ask why. I was perfect to be in a sub. You, well, you've been really perfect in the CBs because the whole CB thing, when they recruited them, 
they were recruiting guys from the building trades. And they said, we promise you, you will never have to polish your shoes. You will never have to stand at attention. Amen. We will give you a couple weeks during which we will teach you which end of the gun the bullet comes out of, and then you're here to build shit. You know, if you're younger and you listen to this, I have a lot of kids come up to me and ask about military, right, um, and, and recommendations. The transferability of skills from CBs, like you said, in engineering, and Army Corps of Engineers, same thing. Yeah. It's just a wonderful transition. I think, I don't know whether, well, you're not that old, so you, it wasn't that long ago. I would say that that's true with 98% of the military. It is now. Because yeah. they just train them and train them and train them, and it's uh, incredible. It was funny because when this person who went to Fort Bragg first got out of the Army, he went to work in rural Vermont. A uh, decent job. The Army was pissed because part of their recruiting pitch is that you will get out. Pissed, very strong word. You will get out and you will take a good job because we want to be able to say to the next recruit right. okay. that, you know, this is a this is really a good stepping stone, which it typically is. My uh, my best friend, so I was on a nuclear sub, the ballistic SSBNs are called. Best friend was a, a nuke ET, so no college degree, anything needed. He could go right to work for Duke Power, make great money. Became an antique dealer because <laughs> he followed his passion, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and he's thrilled. He's oh, happy. there's a book you have to read. I think it's called Raising. I know the last words. The Raising of K-129. The Russian sub? Russian sub sunk a few hundred miles north of Hawaii, and it was the effort to pull it up from, you know, twelve or 13,000 feet. Howard Hughes was heavily involved. It made a, it was funny, in 2018, it made a difference in my life, not that I think about this very much, relative to Vietnam, because they spent an insane amount of money, insane amount of time, like five or six years, and they were just, and you, you would understand this as a sub guy, they were just hunting for that much edge over the Soviets by getting the yep. box where the code translator was. But what it made me realize, which I lived through, is just how hot a war the Cold War was. Yeah. And so Vietnam was a dorky mistake, and as Ken Burns demonstrated, the bastards knew they were you know, doing us in. But the context is the terror associated with the Cold War for 50 bloody years. And we've never experienced probably anything like it before, and God help us, never anything like it again. But it was, I mean, as I said, with the, you, you know, you had code boxes. It was just, if they could find a little thing, they could understand more about the trajectory of Soviet missiles. On the subs that we were on, every single screw is different because of the frequency that it oh. generates when you think about that. So every single sub is unique and has a unique signature, if you will. And uh, they, every time you go in a dry dock, they make a minor, minor alteration to it. Anything, again, like you yeah. said, that slight edge. Slight edge, yeah. yeah. Sounds like business, doesn't it? That's a slight edge that you can take that changes everything. So well, it my, is uh, My amazing. first experience with radar was one of the highlights of my midshipman's career, at least for the enlisted guys who were there. This is 66, 67? No, this is midsh midshipmen took eight-week cruises every okay. summer. And I was on a destroyer, DD-214. And they had some new radar and stuff, and so I was doing my radar watch, and I found the ship. Uh, good, well, for good. you know, yeah. for folks that you know don't know, what the know, ship was which one? Ours. Okay, well, I was about to give them a compliment. Um, understanding uh, radar, understanding what you go through, like torpedo drills, right? The mathematics, the engineering that goes into it. I don't think 
most, most laymen don't understand no, the skill set that goes in, even basic quartermasters, right, what they have to do. Yeah. The physics that you have to understand, the math, and you're doing it on the fly. Now, I'm sure today if I went and took a tour, it's a computer program, but back well, in the 80s it was Well, it's so much of a computer program that I read somewhere that West Point is now teaches how to use a transit and it's got Good. some old tools because the chances of all the software yeah. and you know nobody knows nothing if the software goes you can tell we're two old military guys because <laughs> we've spent the first 12 minutes talking about the military and we're going to spend a couple more minutes okay because i want to ask you this because i did a lot of research and i couldn't find it oh, we have some things yeah so did, here you you go. Find, you did you find the uh, arrest for armed robbery it, oh, was that wasn't in there god either? no no i didn't see that one Th- this one though I, I i kept looking you you credit dick anderson over and i love that you do that yeah over and over and over again. And we'll tell the story of him in a little bit. I'll let you. But what did he end up doing after? He got out and ended up in Pony, Montana, because he was a Westerner and not doing a whole lot. There's a, there's a part of the Anderson story that is not available for discussion, which is something that both of you younger than I would appreciate, though not as much as I. He died about four or five months ago, and five times I put off seeing him. Now, I, I understand that. And yeah. there, you should Don't do see that. people, I, um, and you shouldn't yeah. put it off. So, so for listeners, Dick Anderson was one of your—he was the first commander you had when yeah. you went to, uh, to Nam as a yeah. CB, and you said he influenced your career more than just about anybody. Probably including my father. He and, he, and my, he and my mother score one tied. And for those that aren't familiar with the story, why was it? What was it Dick did? There's an old Vince Lombardi line. You do not have to like your players, but you must love them. It was so clear that he cared about us. I mean, that, was, that came through in the first seven and a half minutes. He was one of those things that everybody talks about and few people pull it off. He was demanding in the truest sense of the word, but it wasn't yelling, screaming, demanding. And the other thing, which is has more to do with my life professionally now, I mean, you know, as you saw in the book, I did a whole chapter on first-line supervisors because, as I put it, the, your full collection of first-line supervisors who fundamentally are the principal variable associated with retention and productivity and everything else. But when Anderson got us to get, we, we arrived on a C-141 Starlifter in the middle of the night in Da Nang, Vietnam. There were about six junior officers. We came over, it was about an 800-person battalion, and we came over a couple hundred at a time. And on my flight, there were about six junior officers. And so he got us together, and he said, boys, I really want you to have a great deployment. He said two things to us, but the one relative to your question is he said, do you know what the definition of a great deployment is for an 01 or 02, which you know what it means to two junior officers, right? He said, 01 or 02 has a great deployment if they do precisely what their chief petty officers tell them to do. Amen. And he said, I am very close to those chief petty officers, and if you don't, I will know it before you do. And the funny thing about it, is it stuck forever because 42, 92, uh, 10 years after In Search of Excellence in 1992, the CBs had their 50th anniversary. And I was reasonably high visibility, so I was invited to give a speech somewhere. It was a dinner speech. So it's a table three times this long, a whole bunch of admirals, and per your dad, a couple of command chiefs were there. 
And so, you know, I got in there and I said, well, he said, so I, it's always nice to see all this brass, but as I'm concerned, the only damn thing that matters in the Navy are the chief petty officers. Some of the, probably the Naval Academy ones, yeah, some of the admirals didn't laugh. But, and one of the chiefs, as you can imagine, came up to me afterwards. He said, I would have paid for that one. <laughs> and, uh, but so that was it. And the other thing was, which, uh, you know, is also very consistent with what I have subsequently written about, uh, is Captain Anderson just said, get the job done. He said, I'm not even vaguely interested in hurdles. You're here to do the job. He said, your equipment will suck. The weather, the monsoon will last forever. You know, the roads will be mined, but he said, you're here to build stuff, which, as you know, you've got to be damn subtle about that. That did not mean that you risk your troops. Right. The analogy that, incidentally, is my Speaker's Bureau, who represents everybody and anybody, represents Colin Powell, and I was at a celebratory party and happened to be 10 feet away when somebody, I think it was some author said to General Powell, he said, well, what are your leadership secrets? And Powell said two things, take care of your troops and focus on today's job, not the promotion. And that was it. You know, it was a single sentence, which I thought was, you know, again, an incredibly powerful. But the other thing that's important about Captain Anderson was I had two deployments, I had two commanding officers, and I know that there are going to be Naval Academy graduates listening and life goes on, and I call them Captain Day and Captain Knight. Anderson's view of life, as I just said, was you're here to get stuff built. I'm not interested in reports. Captain Voldemort's view of the world was I would rather have a meticulous report about a job that wasn't finished. I'm exaggerating, but that's been there. the way, you know, that's the way it felt. The funny thing... <laughs> One of the funny things is I was in the second deployment, I was an operations officer, so I had to write the, the battalion deployment report. And Captain Voldemort, I just can't let his real name slip out. He has passed away, so it's not a libel law thing. And I remember one time I get somebody said, you know, Captain wants to see you. I'm a civil engineering graduate. Comes in, he said, Mr. Peters, and as you also know mm -hmm. in the Navy, Mr. is the junior officer dress said, Mr. Peters, do you not know the difference between the word tangible and palpable? <laughs> God loved me because instead of falling <laughs> apart with hysterical laughter, I was scared enough of the guy that I stood there and said, no, sir, but I'll, it's not fair. There are great Naval Academy officers, but, well, some... No, I can't. I would never say this. I would never say this on the radio. <laughs> say it, sorry. Say it, no, you're fine. Say it on, you know, with, the, it. with the microphone on, but... <laughs> but I can't help it. To me, it's such a striking point because it stuck with me. The The first real good officer I had, and I was, I don't know, 20, I think 21 by the time I went to the boat and was deployed. My, my navigator has been a running influence in my life, right? I'm 51. How I treat my people and the company I work with and how I have been a manager my entire career was influenced by that first individual. Yeah. And the brief time I spent with them, two years, on a couple of deployments, but there's no brief time when you're yeah. That, when you're yeah trust me, when submarine. you're yeah when you're counting the days down, but I still call him Nav. He to this day influences the the importance of, of treating with people, of, of of being there, and 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 
the influence he had and the impact that um, Dick Anderson had on you is... Captain Anderson. Captain please. Anderson, that's true. Captain Anderson had with you is just... That's why I was curious if somebody like me coming out of the military, I look so long to find more stories. You know, it's funny, him. the other thing, and this is the sort of story I don't like to tell because it's, it's a little bit borders on bragging. You know, we had, I don't know, the officer compliment was probably 40 or 50, and that meant that 20 or 25 of us were junior officers. I guess it's this must be the same way in the subservice, albeit you guys are underwater. The commanding officer in the XO are welcome to come into the Chiefs Club anytime they want. Nobody else, always by invitation. I was the only junior officer in that battalion who was allowed to come into the Chiefs Club whenever I wanted to. You know, that says volumes. It, it just does, right? It, it's, it speaks for itself. Anybody that has served like that, they know it. I'm laughing because I'm, I'm watching the clock, and we're at the— we're actually at the publisher's office. If I don't talk about this book, I, know, I want to get that out of the way because I right. like this conversation cool. better. Imagine a new era of banking defined by an end-to-end digital platform that is open, packaged, and upgradable. Harnessing real-time data to enrich client lives. Adopting the cloud to increase speed, agility, and scale. Using APIs to create platforms and ecosystems that redefine value in a world of open banking. It's time to reshape banking. Temenos, with 25 years of experience spanning 3,000 banks in over 150 countries, helps banks achieve their digital vision faster. So here's something I found interesting. So you got a new book coming out, The Excellence Dividend. And, and actually, it's probably a lot like this story, right? Looking back in 35 years of doing yeah. this, because... Um, 50. The... Uh 52. The arrival, I, I said my management career started when I arrived in Da Nang in 1966 in August. So I think a lot of people actually get that fooled because it was what, in 19, it was 1982 when In Search of Excellence right. came out. And so you were you were pushing 40 or around 40. Absolutely. So, I mean, that's, that's multiple careers before then, yeah. right? I mean, I think people get this wrong image of you wrote a book, that's the life, right? I mean, there was multiple stages Absolutely. and experience to get there. The one thing I found interesting when I went back and I looked at, at, the, at all the books, and it is rather funny because I think in 87, the first time I read any of your works, right? So by then I was in university. I was thriving on chaos. Thriving on chaos. And the, it the number of people came career. up to me afterwards with that title and said, ah, you wrote my autobiography for me. <laughs> well, I, I was like, finally, somebody gets me. Thank God. But when I looked at all the books that you've written, it's usually like a two or three year span. I think one time you had five years. This is the longest... I think, Span, you've gone yeah, without so. publishing. Yeah, right. yes, almost eight years. Why? Just curious. Getting older, dude. I thought he was going to say that. <laughs> I was going to let that go. Yeah. But it has. This um, is the longest Span. I have no idea. This one was, uh, there was no intention with this one. My wife and I are lucky enough to go to New Zealand for the North American winter. And I, for not for amusements, become a love affair. I go up to the Auckland Business School and uh, teach up there for about 10 days. And I was going to be giving some lectures, and I thought, maybe I'm going to pull everything that I've learned in the last... I use PowerPoint slides. And yeah, we know. So I, <laughs> and so Everyone I, end, knows. I ended up pulling together a 4,096-slide-17-chapter <laughs> presentation with 100,000 words of annotation. But then at some point, I thought, well, I'm going to write this up. And the goal was self-publication and the Edward Kastenmeyer who works in this building is my publisher but his boss is a guy by the name of Sonny Meadow who runs several of the imprints here at uh, Penguin Random House and so my wife who knows Sonny and also knows my agent Esther Newberg 
said to me, she said, she said, this is a book, and you're going to go see Sonny. I said, I'm not going to see Sonny. She said, you're going to go see Sonny, and you're going to go see Esther. I said, I am not going to see Sonny, and I'm not going to see Esther. And she said, yes, you are. And, you know, she, as much as it's a joke line, she does have the last word. There's no doubt about that whatsoever. And so I went to see Sonny and Esther, and they said, or Sonny said, yeah, it's a book. Of course, he did make a smart-ass remark, which I loved. When I worked with him, I worked at Knopf, which is probably the most literary house around. And the first guy who he had who was a business author, maybe the only other one, name you may or may not remember, it was the first best-selling business book. A guy by the name of Bob Townsend, it was called Up the Organization. Okay, yeah. If you remember, 51 is borderline. Uh, Avis competed effectively with Hertz when they came up with a one-liner, we're number two and we try harder. And he was the inventor of that, among many other things. But anyway, so I go to see Sonny, and he said, yeah, he said, I'll publish your book. He said, he said I'll publish your book because I hope it's a good book. But he said, frankly, he said, you made a lot of money for us, and the role of business authors is to make the money to allow us to afford the really good writers. Nice. It was not quite that crude, <laughs> but I always thought it. I had, no, I had no problem with that. I mean, my one-liner, which is which I really believe because I don't have any confusion in my head is I said, sometimes people say to me, your books are pretty well written. And I said, I would acknowledge I am a good journeyman business writer. And then depending on their age, I said, if you remember the days in baseball where there was triple A, double A, A, B, C, and D leagues, I said, being a good business writer is like winning the batting title in a Class C league. And there's truth to it. There was a wonderful book about 18 months ago, I guess, called All the Light You Cannot See. It took me months to read it because every paragraph was a piece of art, you know, emotionally, structurally, and everything else. And my writing is good journeyman writing, and it's probably good for my audience, but I do not confuse myself with people who produce art. And that's not, not a throwaway line, believe me. What type of a reader are you? And this is what I mean by that. When I read books, pen and a highlighter's in my hand and yellow stickies. And I circle, highlight, yeah. and come back to it. Yeah, yeah. I, there's a book called The Rise and Fall of Business Strategy. It was written by Henry Mintzberg. And probably this doesn't belong in public either. But I read that book, and one out of every two pages was bent. The highlighters were such that the pages were kind of soaking wet and distorted and Henry had a heart problem a couple of years ago and I, kn I know him reasonably well and I thought you know if I was an author I can't imagine anything cooler than getting a copy of my book yeah. from somebody who had bent every page and so I sent it to Henry and I said I said this is a big deal because I would like to have this book on my shelf uh, but the reality was it was incredibly Influential, But, you know, to be fair, I'm, I'm split. If it's a book I decide I want to dig into, I do that. But I also try to keep up, which means I read a lot of books and buy those books in paper and spend a couple hours on them to try to figure out what the principal message is. But any book I'm serious about. Uh, and for good fiction, a la that other point, it's not for training. It's just appreciation. I read them very slowly because I great art, great music, whatever it happens to be. And to me, great literature is the, you know, belongs in that same league.
in one of your many talks, you, you had somebody that said, uh, they were talking about CEOs. We were, we were joking before we started recording about CEOs. Actually, one of the, um, he was petty officer first class, but went on to become a, a master chief and found him almost 30 years later, right? Michael Ogden Thomas. Michael, you just got a shout out. Michael asked me to ask you, do you think CEOs make too much money or overpaid? But before we go there, one of the comments you actually had said in the talk was the feedback you got were CEOs don't read enough. Yeah, actually came from, uh, it was a a social dinner party, and not unfortunately, whatever it is. I would never give the person's name away, and it surely wasn't Warren Buffett, but it belongs to somebody who would be in the top ten in that league. And it was, I mean, it was funny. I mean, I was, you know, I'm a born smartass. And he said to me, he said, Tom, what do you think the number one problem is with CEOs? And my smart-ass response was, I can think of 50, but I'm not sure I can single one out. You actually said 100 in the talk, I mean, by I the said way. 100, yeah. <laughs> anyway, anyway, at any point, per your point, he looked at me and, you know, you could have literally knocked me over with that proverbial feather. He said, they don't read enough. Yeah. And I believe that's probably true for all times, but, you know, about... And you would appreciate this, given what you have done professionally with your life. I am arrogant enough to think that for about 20 years, I may have been a quarter of a step ahead of the herd. And I kind of woke up three or four years ago, and I couldn't even see the tail end of the herd. And so basically, I de facto, not de jure, took a year off and read you know, a couple hundred books on the topics that are particularly near and dear to your heart. Technology, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And as I said to somebody, I'm not, I'm not in the herd, but I can have an intelligent conversation with pretty much anybody now, and that's a, and that's a huge step forward. But, I mean, you know, in the context of the new book, the point is that with all the change that's going on, you know, it's such a cheap term, but you've got to be 60, 60, 24, 7, a lifelong learner. Your only hope. Well, in any job, and see, this is what's cool, all right? Uh, my wife and I have a sub-zero refrigerator, and we had a problem, and a guy came out, and it was a compressor problem. And I have no ability whatsoever not to have long conversations with people. And I would guess he's 45, and he has a a little repair company that's his with six or seven people. And so we got Shooting the Breeze. This is night 2017. And on his own nickel, he had just come back from a two-week course effectively on the Internet of Things. And, you know, know, what do you think a two-week course costs? Probably a couple thousand bucks, maybe more. It wasn't a MOOC or anything like that. And I just loved it because it's one thing to say that you and I have got to do it or this CEO that my friend was talking about has got it. But, but when people are aware, I mean, he had fun. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't an act of pain, but he de facto as a tradesman, A, took two weeks off, B, spent a lot of money because he had to be a good student because, as you know, every 15 minutes there's a new model coming out and the new model has more software significantly than the one before. And, and, you know, part of my answer to your question is, as you probably saw in the book, is frankly I'm not terribly interested in Fortune 500 CEOs. It seems as though their only role in life is to 
install technology, fire people, make a lot of money, and move on, which is very unfair. The people who interest me are the SMEs, the small and medium-sized enterprises. And, you know, among other things, I, I have, I've got about a dozen people that I dedicate the book to, and four of them are SME superstars. And as an old Silicon Valley guy, the requirement for my superstar list, boring industry. I am not interested in unicornishness associated with doing incredibly important things for the planet, like starting a dating routine called Facebook. Incredibly, incredibly <laughs> important. Yeah, just stop. I mean, you know, one of them is this, is this Australian. His name is Jim Penman, and he was getting a Ph.D. in something or other, and he ran out of money, which all Ph.D. students do, and he liked cutting lawns, and he now has 4,000 or 6,000 franchisees, and, and his logo, more or less, this is not it technically, is we love to do things that people hate to do. And it's everything from dog walking to you know, cleaning lawns to cutting grass. And he has incredibly high customer service standards. He just wrote something about all every customer fan and so on. But I love it in 2018 when somebody can have you know, several thousand franchisees cutting lawns and walking dogs. And, and you know, the point is, that that's where people work. It doesn't matter whether it's America or whether it's you know an African company. Most of us work for small businesses. I mean, I, I think I read somewhere, and I've tried to chase it down, and I can't find it, so I'm probably wrong. Uh, less than 10% of the American workforce are domestic employees of Fortune 500 companies. So 90% of us do not work for GE or Facebook or Google or whomever. And so I, I, and I just love the ones who do stuff that anybody in their right mind would call as boring and achieve, to use my word, the same level of excellence that some weenie does out in Silicon Valley. You, you once said, this, I laughed so hard. I was driving my car and had a YouTube oh, I'm video sorry. with you I talking. Hope, hope it, I wasn't watching I hope it. you didn't yeah. kill a little old lady. Or... Uh, my 15-year-old my, my daughter was really ticked at me. She had her headphones and she just kept looking at me. She's like, oh my God, why are you still listening to this guy? But you, you, you said... I would agree with your daughter. Oh, this made me laugh. You said Netscape was my favorite company because it showed up, it changed the world, and it got the hell out. That was a funny-ass line. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, it's a funny... Uh, another semi, it's not at all funny-ass, but same point, which is an important point. You know, John Scully served his tour of duty between Jobs 1 and Jobs 2 at Apple. And some people thought he did a lot. I was sort of one of them. He certainly changed the attitude because Steve was a jerk before he became Jobs 2. But at any rate, Scully wrote a book, as everybody is required to do. And the one thing I, I remember from the book is he said, I cannot promise you a five-year job at Apple. I cannot promise you a five-month job at Apple. I can barely promise you a five-week job, but he said, I will promise you that for whatever period of time you are at Apple, you will have learned more than you could have anywhere else on Earth. That's a powerful line. Here's, here's what I've enjoyed. So going back from you know, the book in 1982 to today and a million talks, a million blog posts, you, you take your pick. Consistency of message. You always come back to talent. You always come back to the people, always learning. I was laughing. I watched a video of you. I think it was 2002. And you were telling everybody, look, those jobs, they're going to change quick. We're going to be turning those. I think that, that was. It was 2002 when you were saying that. 
I found suddenly, something actually where it said the same thing, which I was shocked in 1990. And I'm not surprised whatsoever, right? Because that consistency of message, that thread, and that, that has to actually actually feel good internally because you don't have to look back and go, okay, I was so full of crap. Well, you know, you know, the funny thing about that is I said to somebody, people say, we've well, been writing about this woman's stuff for 20 years. We've been writing about this people's stuff. And I said, the definition of new is it stops being new when it gets implemented. I will stop talking about the people stuff when people do it. And until they do it, it remains a new idea. So there's no power or amusement to me in going off on another tangent just because you or I am tired of writing about this stuff. We're, we're in a conference room, a very long conference table, which, which springs to mind a boardroom meeting. And, and I deal with, you know, some of the largest banks in the world. I'm in financial services is what I do. And you've joked around about this to where you can go out and you pull up anybody's annual report and you pull that board together. And it's basically, it's you and me. It's two older white guys yep. sitting around a table. And that still hasn't changed. And you've brought, so you're right. You, you have to keep beating that drum because yeah. we're just not there yet. Well, speaking of one, speaking of the gender part of it, incidentally, which which I cite in the book is, for all their problems, McKinsey is certainly good analytically. There was, a, there was a study of big global companies, and companies with gender balance on their boards, among other things, had 56% higher operating profits, and that makes sense to me. I mean, my line with the women's thing, incidentally, is I said, you know, if, if it's a social justice issue, which I think it is, I said, that's what I do on my private time. I said, the reason that you want to have 50% women on your board, among other things, is women buy 80% of your products. And so it's just, you know, I said, if you're a misogynist, not a, not a, not a me tooer, you know, but I said, if you are a misogynist, that's and not abusive, that's fine with me. You still do it. Well, you've said this, if, if you're bored, if your management team doesn't reflect your customer base, you are completely hosed up. Yeah, and, and to suggest it does go beyond women, I think it was PepsiCo or something like that, that had huge operations in California, and California is hugely Hispanic by now, and they looked at their board and they said, there's not any representation of that community at the board level. And so it's you know not just talking about the gender stuff, as you just said, old, young, I do in the new book, I do something like my ideal board. And I, it's actually, I think it's pretty good. But, you know, it limits the number of MBAs per your world that says we got to have one VC, even if it's an old company. We got to have, we've got to have, I don't want to say, oh, you got to have two people under 30, which would blow the minds of most. You know, I, I said to somebody, look, I'm an old fart, and that business of 70 is the new 50 is unmitigated bullshit. But I said the flip side of that, and I really do say this and look at people seriously in a speech, is 35 is the new 65, meaning it on various definitions. But And you tell me, because you know this is your turf more than mine, it's a while before they will move into the workforce seriously. But I think arguably, and arguably is the right word, 15-year-olds really are different, yeah. and 10-year-olds are different. I don't think, to some level, 30-year-olds, 30-year-olds, to some philosophically, psychologically, grew up with better tools than I had 
but they were in a continuum. But they weren't they weren't born digital. I think is that's, the term that's I a, use. Sorry, that's the term they people became, use, and that's yeah, exactly right. We became digitized. I yep. can remember the first time I used the web. First time I sent an email. My son, when we moved to England, the, the iPhone came out. That's when Steve Jobs. I mean, literally, I think the same month held it yeah. up. He's never not known. Yeah. Technology. My granddaughter. Good God. Right. It's, yeah. it's intuitive. Absolutely. They, they are digitized creatures. But he, here's, here's the double whammy, though. Some of us, and you, this dimension may be worse than I am. All of that is true, and I believe it's true, and I believe it's incredibly important, comma, but for the next 30 years, our 30-year-olds won't have retired. And the numbers are clear, and that is the biggest missed market opportunity is old folks. And financial services knows that a teeny bit better than others, but financial services isn't isn't really much better. And so, yeah, somebody said it's the American way. We always believe in youth, which I think is probably true. Uh, but you know, again, I do have one-liners, and my one-liner about people like me, the old people, I I say, we don't have the money. We have all the money. And it's, you know, it is an accurate statement. There's some number in there that I found somewhere, and I will get this wrong, but directionally, correctly, the average net worth, and admittedly, people have had their pensions whacked and so on, which I acknowledge and, 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 you know, it's deeply distressing. But something like the average 50-year-plus-er has 47 times higher net worth than 20 to 35ers. And yet the marketing people still say, I want to grab them when they're young and get the all-important 18 to 44-year-old. Well, part of the crap with that, and I know you're the same way, and I did a list one time at the beers that I drank and various products that I used when I was 25. Getting me for life is unmitigated bullshit. I couldn't find a single place other than maybe jockey shorts you know, where the continuum went on from, you know, age 20 to age 70. And you've also said, and you are spot on, dead on accurate with this, as somebody who's in that fintech community, not only we don't have a focus on, you know, that that generation 50 and above, but the the wealth transfer that we're seeing globally, and especially in the U.S. to women, right? I mean, we completely ignore a market yeah. when it comes back, like you said, yeah, the there's designers. There's one stat that I've got in the book, $22 trillion will, yeah. for two reasons, just to make sure we get both right. A, because guys are really helpful to women by dying earlier, and B, because of the incredible advances women have made in the workforce, but between those two things, it's just an insane amount of wealth transfer. You know, a lot, a lot of zeros in $22 trillion. All right, so I, I, one, because you have one cool interview coming up right after this that I'm jealous of. I'm having a cool interview. Yeah, get unfortunately, off, get we're off, in a snowstorm. Get off your, get off your, we're in a snowstorm in uh, Manhattan. My last question, this is probably the hardest one I've asked you. You, you look back over that, that, that 50-year career, and I already think I know the answer because of how you keep putting content out. Are we getting better? from a management standpoint, at that senior level? Are the lessons kicking in? Are you encouraged by what you see? And we'll move in, in, outside of politics. No, we'll no, just no, stick no, with no. That's, no, that, um, no, not at the Fortune 500 level. I mean, the whole point of In Search of Excellence was finding the, finding the outliers. Mm-hmm. And, you know, relative to the new book, and as you said, it's been a while since the last one, one of the epiphanies was focus on SMEs because... If I get a message from the book through to you, 
and you're running an SME and you're 51 or 41, maybe even 31, there's a good chance that I'm going to get through to you at least to the level where you try something. And I believe that most of this stuff, if you tried it, you will become addicted to it, like managing by wandering around. So I really care about the SMEs. And I'm sorry the Fortune 500 CEOs aren't doing more, which I think, by and large, they're not, with exceptions to the rule. Uh, but I'm not very interested in them. I'm not very interested in them in the United States or, you know, there's, there's a, or any place else. There's one book that I love that I came across. It's written by German management guru, Herman Simon, I think is his name, and it was called Hidden Champions. And it's about the companies that can go up to a billion dollars in size, I think, who own a market. And way back in 1990, arrogantly, he said, I think I became the first American to study the mid-sized German companies, the Mittelstand companies. And the fascinating thing is that when the inevitable took place two or three years ago, China became the world's biggest exporter. But before then, it was always Germany. Not the United States of America, not Japan, but year after year it was Germany, and it was always on the back of these Mittelstein companies. Like if you've, when, if you've seen a movie being made, you know those big, what the heck do you call them, the big cranes where the, where the, uh, where the camera hangs from when you're doing a shot? There's some German company that owns 95% of that market, and that's cool. You know, that sort of thing is, is fabulous, but you know, per the thing we were talking about earlier with the Australian who cut lawns. I just think there's so much room. There's so much, so much room in that arena. And you know, one of the things that I kind of invented on a lark when I was working on this book, was, which is something that I called my campaign one million jobs. And the point is, per an earlier example, what can we do to help the roofing contractor go from being a nine-person company to an 11-person company over the next 24 months. And if we can do that 500,000 times, we've created a million jobs. And I think it's always possible. Well, the new book is The Excellent Dividend. Highly recommend, especially Fortune 500 CEOs, that you read it. Mr. Peters, sir, Tom, thank you. I really thoroughly enjoyed it. That was a wonderful conversation. Great way to spend the morning. You've been listening to another episode of FinTech Insiders by 11FS, just in case you didn't realize that after the past 40 minutes. If you like what you heard, then be sure to subscribe to the podcast. And please do go out and give us a five-star rating on iTunes. We love getting feedback from our listeners. And if you have interview suggestions, then please do forward these on to us. Thanks for listening.